Let's pray, shall we, as we turn to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's boldness in speaking, for his ability to not hold back, but to call it as he sees it. Father, today help us, please, to have great insight into our own lives, that we would, as Paul would have us, depend wholeheartedly on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for our righteousness before you, Give us the ability to see into our own lives if and where we are tempted to fall back into legalism and to add to the work of Jesus. And we ask this, that we might be truly blessed by you, the God of blessing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Have you heard that one? Uh, yes, a few. Not. Anyone not heard it? The, the, the idea is that you become so used to things that what was once wonderful, marvellous, new, exciting becomes just normal and everyday and, and then perhaps something that we assume, we take for granted or even expect and are entitled to, to then begin to despise it, to think that it's a bit rubbish and really we need the next new thing. In some ways, that sentence captures our entire age. Familiarity breeds contempt. The newest, latest toy lasts for about five minutes and then I think it's already old and outdated and I need the new one. It, it happens in all sorts of areas of life that we don't even realise. I reckon that you haven't realised a stack of areas in your life where you are now despising something that is incredibly amazing. You don't believe me? Who turned on a tap and had fresh water today? Isn't that incredible? I mean, what a wonderful, what a marvel of modern life. The engineering required, the chemistry to purify the water, the infrastructure to bring it into your house, safe and clean and drinkable. The, you can open and there it is. And what do we think? Oh, I better go get the Evian out of the fridge, right? I mean, tap water, who drinks tap water? I'll have some, some soft drink, thank you very much. We do it in all sorts of ways. We open the fridge. We expect there to be food there. We have a fridge. We don't think twice of it. You can get into your car and drive down the road. You can compare that to having to walk an hour each way to the well to get water every day. Familiarity has bred a lot of contempt, hasn't it? The thing is, we do that with Christian parts of our world as well. Right This morning I got up and I thought, you know what, I'd like to go to church today, I think I will, which is good, I'm the preacher, so it'd be a shame if I didn't feel that, but you know, I opened the door, I walked outside, I had no trouble getting here, there wasn't a mob at the door trying to intimidate me from walking in, I, my face isn't about to be plastered all over the news, I hope not anyway, right, there, there's no danger to me by being here, there's no danger to you by being here, we just wandered on in, we sang out loud, no one noticed. That's a bit of a shame, I wish they would, but we did. We can preach the Bible. No one had to censor my sermon beforehand as much as they might have wanted to. No, I didn't have to give the manuscript to be approved. I didn't... Familiarity breeds quite incredible contempt sometimes, doesn't it? If I want to read the Bible, all I have to do is reach my arm out and I have a selection of Bibles in my native language to choose from. I don't think twice about it. Oh, 
I'll read the NIV today. Maybe I'll pick the ESV for a change. I feel like a challenge. I'm going to go find the King James and get some good vocabulary. I, I don't even think twice about it. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the really dangerous one, and this is the one that's the heart of what we're talking about today and what Paul has been banging on about for a couple of chapters now. For those who've been Christians for a long time, it becomes so easy for the cross of Christ to become something that we just take for granted. I mean, of course, if I asked you, you'd tell me how important it is, right? That this is the heart of what we're on about, the cross of the Lord Jesus. This is the day-to-day, it's just a piece of furniture, right? Or a bit of jewellery, or maybe occasionally I think about it, but is it truly something that is at the very heart of it? The problem, of course, is that it's very hard to see those things that you become familiar with, isn't it? You become familiar with them, they, they blur into the background, they lose their edge. We think of the cross as, well, maybe it's important, but it's just normal, right? That, that's just the normal part of stuff, is that there was a man who was executed brutally on a cross 2,000 years ago, and that that is the very centre of time and space and meaning. Well, that's just normal, isn't it? Everyone thinks that. We lose sight of the foolishness of the cross. How strange it appears to an outsider who walks into the midst among us and we say to them, oh yeah, yeah, what we're on about is a man who was executed, who was cursed by God, that's what we're on about. Paul describes the cross as being a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. the strangeness of it, the unusualness of it, is very powerful. You think about the Jews, right, those first century Jews, the ones who were coming to try and distract the Galatians from Jesus. They were expecting the Christ, the, the Messiah, it's the same word, Christ is the Greek word, Messiah is the Hebrew word, both of them just mean God's King. They were expecting God's King to arrive. Paul came in and said, oh, the Christ has been crucified. Excuse me? God's anointed king who's going to come to rule and to reign, to to throw off the yoke of our oppressors, to establish Israel as the mighty nation once again, to, to cement our power across the whole globe, is being cursed by God? The cross is absolute nonsense, Paul. What are you talking about? Now, this is what was happening with the Galatians, right? You remember the last few weeks, I hope you've understood the problem by now. Paul arrived and preached Christ crucified, the Galatians had believed it, they went, that sounds great, that's what we need. And then some Jews came in and said, well, it's a good start, but we just need to add a little bit of something to it. You just need to become a Jew as well, that's all, that's all. Christ, yes, and a little bit of extra something. The cross as being enough is the stumbling block. That Jesus' death has done it all. Everything. Everything that I need, everything that you need, done. Really? I mean, this is going to be the challenge for us this morning. Do we live that way? We might think it, we might say it, If I asked you, I'm sure you would tell it to me, you've been sitting in these pews for long enough to know that it's true, but do we live knowing that the cross of Christ is really enough? 
Now, here's Paul's point. Chapter 3, he's arguing the same thing again. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 21. Chapter 2 and verse 21 of Galatians. Again, as always, have your Bible open. It's going to be very good for you and good for me. I don't set aside the grace of God, he says, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Right? If you can get the law, if you can get righteousness, if you can receive the blessing of God, if it were possible to achieve the right standing before God through the law, then Jesus' death was in vain. It, it was, it's futile. What's the point of it? You can get righteousness this way. You don't need Jesus' death. Or to flip it and put it in the positive, if you add anything to Jesus' work, then you undo Jesus' work. You add anything to Jesus and it becomes nothing. It changes it completely. I, I thought of a little illustration for it. Here you go. Uh, who, who likes baking? Anyone like baking? Uh, there's only a couple. Good. The rest of us are sensible. Right. The, my problem with baking is that it seems to require every single pot and pan you have in the kitchen. My problem with baking is the washing up, not the baking bit itself. Right. My, my family does it and I come out and just the kitchen's just... Poof, Right, but anyway, imagine baking a chocolate cake. Right? This, this is about as far as I get. You, you get some flour, I think, I'm getting this right. You put eggs, butter, and some form of chocolate or cocoa, or, and then a whole lot of sugar in, right? And there's cake. You put it in, out comes cake. Now imagine for a moment that you just thought, I'm going to add one little ingredient. I mean, there's cake, perfect cake. doesn't need anything else. It's, it's great. It's wonderful cake. Today, I'm just going to experiment a little bit and just add some cement. That's all. Not a lot of cement, okay? Just the same amount as the other ingredients. So, so I'm not... I put it in the, in what comes, it's no cake anymore, is it? It's a statue now. Something completely different. You add anything to Jesus and you're left with something else completely. Now, in chapter 3, we have three arguments, okay? Three arguments that Paul wants to do once again to convince us, okay? He's banging on about this point. I hope that you are convinced already and if not, that you are by the end of today. Three arguments and one example, which you've got them laid out in your handout if you're following along there. The first argument is from experience. Have a look with me at verse 1 again, we'll go from chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I arrived and I preached Christ crucified. That was the message I preached to you. What happened? Verse 2, I only want to learn this from you. Answer me, riddle me this, Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which was it? I mean, you've gotten the Spirit, you've received the Spirit, the Spirit has come. Have a look, it keeps going, verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? or by believing what you heard. They had incredible things happen amongst them. The miracles of the apostles themselves, the Spirit poured out on them, new life, they came from death to life. The fruit of the Spirit happening in their lives, we'll learn about that in chapter 5 in Galatians. And how did it all come? Did it come by the law? Well, you know what? For a bit over a thousand years, people had been keeping the law. Right, they date Moses somewhere between 1500 and 1300 BC. So for the better part of 1500 years, there had been people 
desperately keeping the law. And all they got was condemnation. They failed and had to offer sacrifices in penance and then they failed again. There was no spirit poured out. There was no new age of God's life intruding into this one. But it did happen among the Galatians. They did have the spirit poured out among them. As they heard the gospel, as they believed, there was no law keeping that was required. They heard. You see, they couldn't receive it the old way. The Spirit didn't come through the law. The blessing of God didn't come through the law. It came through their faith. The Lord Jesus Christ doing what was needed. So why on earth, he says to me, go back to the old way? You foolish Galatians. I mean, it's a strong word, isn't it? I don't know that I've ever started a sermon that way. I should try it one week. You bunch of fools. Right? I mean, it doesn't quite endear itself, does it? But you understand it. The new way has brought the Spirit. What are you doing over there? It, it put me in mind of aviation. Uh, people have wanted to fly for a very long time. I, I don't know if you've ever explored the history of flight. It's a fascinating thing, right? There's, there's the stories going all the way back to kind of Roman times. Of, what was it, Icarus? Was he the one who flew too close to the sun, right? And what did he do? He just strapped some wings onto his arms and flapped. And for a long time, that's what people thought, how you would fly. We just had to get the right sort of wings and the right amount of flapping and you'd be able to fly. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci very famously had his own machine. Um, that's not his, that's some modern guy recreating it. He did jump off that cliff. Um, you'd be pleased to know that there's water underneath. So when he went splat, he managed to get up and keep going again, right? It just didn't work. For hundreds and thousands of years, we tried to fly. It's time to travel to Europe. What are you going to take? A modern aeroplane or that? I mean, we've worked out flight now. We understand the shape of wings and aerodynamics and how to create lift so that we can have jumbo jets the size of football fields carrying a thousand people that stay in the air for 20,000 kilometers without having to refuel. Why on earth would you go back to strapping feathers on your arms and flapping to fly? The Spirit came by faith. Their experience told them that. You don't need to add anything. The old way doesn't work, is Paul's first argument. Which isn't quite right, actually, now that I put it that way. Because if you were to go back to the oldest way, if you were to go back to the very beginning, you see, it was always about faith. This is his second argument. Have a look down at verse 5 again. So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard, just like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness? You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. The Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. Is if you want to understand the truly Jewish way of receiving God's blessing, then you need to go back to the first one, who was promised God's blessing. 
Abraham was the one who received the promises. That was our, our first reading in Genesis chapter 12. God went and found this random man in a random place and said, you're going to be my one. I'm going to make some promises to you. You're going to have land, you're going to have descendants, you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. I'm going to bless you. I'll be your God and you are going to be my people. And Abraham, do you know what Abraham did? Actually, he didn't do anything. He, he, he accepted what God said. He said, okay, sounds good. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. I trust you, God. I believe you, God. Isn't that an interesting word? Abraham believed God. Now, notice he didn't believe in God. Lots of people believe in God. In fact, the, the census says the majority of Australians believe in God. There's, there's, he's out there somewhere. When I need him, I'll call. That's different to believing God, to hearing his word and taking him at his word. Abraham, he, he wasn't a law keeper. He couldn't have been a law keeper. There was no law. Abraham wasn't a moral human being. You know his story, it's sordid. He was a flawed, failed human being who made the same mistakes over and over again. He was a sinner. But what did he do when God made a promise? He took God at his word. He believed him. And isn't that a marvellous thing? That if you believe, you become the true child of Abraham. You become an heir of the things that God promised to him. I find verse 8 so interesting. The scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. From the very beginning, it was going to be this way. To those who believe the gospel, the righteousness will come. Abraham, in some ways, you could say, was a Gentile. I mean, is that an interesting thought? He wasn't a Jew. There was no covenant, there was no law, there was no national identity. He was a Gentile that God went and picked and made promises to. And this Gentile believed God. The gospel preached beforehand. Righteousness comes through taking God at His word. Now, if we had skipped from Abraham to us with none of the rest of the Bible, it would have been dead easy. Because you would have gone, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. We believe and it's counted to us as right. That's easy, right? That's not a problem. The problem was that the law came. The law was given in the middle there and what the law did, it cursed the entire world. That's a problem, isn't it? Have a look at the next couple of verses in verse 10. As Paul sets up this problem, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Three Old Testament quotes that just set up the problem. The law is about works. Righteousness doesn't come by works, it comes by faith. Therefore, if you are trying to find righteousness by the law, you will fail. All you will receive is a curse. 
turns out the whole world is under that curse. How do you deal with it? How do you undo the curse of the law? You can't be cursed by God and righteous before God. It doesn't work. You can't be both. You can't be cursed and blessed. You get one or you get the other. How can we receive the blessing God promised to Abraham when the curse of the law just holds us bound? Well, here's my third, here's Paul's third argument. Jesus deals with the curse of the law. You see, the problem was, if you want righteousness by the law, you have to be perfect. There's, there's, really, there's the problem in a nutshell, right? You have to keep the law perfectly. And I don't mean keep the law perfectly from now on. I mean always have kept the law perfectly. So even if, even if, and that's a really big even and a really big if, you were somehow able to keep the law from this moment on in your life, all you've got to do is look backwards. <laughs> that's too late, isn't it? That's the problem. I tell you what's the problem though that any moralistic solution has. Anyone that wants to tell you that it's about being good has got to deal with that problem. How do you deal with failure? How do you somehow pay for the lapse of the past? There's atheist movements today that want to say, we don't need religion, we don't need God, we don't need the Bible, we can create our own moral systems, we can create our own good life with good laws that are good for everyone. You say, well, how do you deal with failure? No, <laughs> not quite sure to be perfectly honest. I mean, religions are the same, right? Most religions are about doing good. Well, what happens when you fail? Do you just go into denial? I, I didn't really, I didn't actually do that. You're just imagining, I, I didn't fail. <laughs> or perhaps you lower the bar. Well, well, the little bad things are okay. I, I know I did that one, I know I did that, but that one's okay, that's just the little one, it's the big ones that are the real problem, right? Everyone tells white lies, everyone commits a little bit of tax fraud, that's not the real problem, the problem is when you murder someone, okay? So let's just, like, do you change the law and just say, well, no, that's now okay, what used to be wrong is now celebrated, I mean, that's happened in our country, right? Was it um, same-sex uh, behaviour was illegal up until just a couple of decades ago, and now it's marriage and celebrated and it's all wonderful? Do you just accept the guilt and somehow hope that some degree of payment or penance, right, I'm going to beat myself with rods, hoping that that will somehow undo the sin of the past? God's standard is perfect and to fail it brings about the curse of the law. How on earth do you deal with that curse? Here's the basic truth, we can't. Right, there's, there's the starting point, the underlying premise of Christianity begins there. I can't. You can't. It, the, the curse we are on is an impossible one to lift. We are, we're essentially, we're dead. Dead people can't help themselves. We can't. What we need it's for someone else to do it. In fact, what we need is for God to do it. He's the only one who can. Have a look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did He do it? By becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus buys us out of the curse. He, he didn't deserve to be cursed. 
In the whole history of the world, there was only one person who did keep the law. There was only one person who never incurred the curse that the law brings. That was Jesus. He was the only one. He became a curse for us. The curse that fell on Jesus, and he was cursed by God, the curse that fell on Jesus was mine. It was yours. It's a substitution, him in our place, in order that we could be redeemed. He paid, right? That's the word redemption. It's, it's going down to the cash converters, right? And you, you hock your guitar and it's bringing back the money and saying, here's the money, I'll have my thing, please. That's redemption. It's Jesus coming before the Father and saying, I will pay that they may go free. I will take their curse that they may have my blessing. Such that, verse 14, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus, that we could receive the promised Spirit through faith. Isn't that marvellous? Again, we come full circle in this argument. Jesus did the work so that when he promised, when God promised to Abraham, remember God promised that all the nations are going to receive blessing through you. How could that possibly happen? Well, Jesus had to die, that the curse might be lifted if only we would take him at his word. Now, he, he writes a human example, okay? The law can't be added. The human example, verses 15, brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration, no one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. The promise was spoken to Abraham and then 430 years later, the law came. The law doesn't undo the promise. The promise was already there. I, I wrote my will this week. There you go. Some would say it was well overdue. Uh, it just took ages to find witnesses. You have to have people sign it. Such an inconvenience, right? But it's done. My, my will is there. It's in a filing cabinet somewhere. It doesn't get changed. It doesn't get modified. After I die, someone else can't come along and say, hey, we want to change that bit we want to add it no it's done it's my promise it's my pledge in fact the, the will is such a good illustration because nobody earns an inheritance <laughs> i'm sorry if you're thinking sitting there thinking well i'm the i'm the best of the grandkids so uh, when grandma goes i'm getting it because i i've earned my way into the inheritance right my picture is the one that's furthest down the wall i i get it, it doesn't work that way an inheritance is a free gift I could choose to write into my will, I leave all of my wealth to the fifth bird to land on our roof. I could do that. It'd be dumb, wouldn't it? Rather daft and probably should get challenged. But let's just, the illustration fails there. Let's keep going for a moment. I, it's, it's my, it, I can do what I want with it. It's God's pledge. It's God's gift. He chooses who to give and he gave it by a promise such that the Lord doesn't undo it. From the beginning, the blessing of God comes through his promise, earned by Jesus' death, that we who take God at his word, just like Abraham did, might be the recipients of blessing. Are you convinced yet? You try and add anything to Jesus, and you don't get any of it. 
if you try and add just the littlest bit of law back to the work that Jesus has done, you nullify it completely. You go back to seeking righteousness on your own because you are no longer taking God at His Word. God's Word is, you will only find righteousness in my Son. The moment where you seek righteousness somewhere else, you are no longer a man or woman of faith. You're no longer taking God at His Word. And you lose it all. Really, that's the implication. I've just got one. I want to illustrate it a couple of ways, but just one implication. If you add anything to the work that Christ has done, you undo it all and you're back on your own again. You negate His work. The cross of Jesus, we must never despise it. We must never take it for granted. We must never even consider it just to be a normal, everyday, humdrum part of who we are. It is the heart of everything we have. It is the only place that we will find the blessing of God. Without the cross of Christ, all that is left is a curse. Now, I was trying to ponder, what, what does it look like for us? We don't have Jewish teachers in our midst telling us to get circumcised. We, we, we don't have exactly the same set of challenges the Galatians had. What does it look like for us? To rely on ourselves rather than God. That's what we're talking about, right? To somehow create a set of religious rules that govern our Christian life that somehow bring us into the blessing of God. I wondered whether it might not look like two potentially extreme ends of a spectrum. I could imagine for some people, I'll call them the, uh, the just enough Christian. Just enough. I've done enough this week. I've ticked enough boxes. To be another good Christian for the week again. Right, I, I went to a church service, doesn't matter which one, doesn't matter if it's my church, doesn't matter, but I went to a church service. Think. Maybe I even read the Bible once this week. Oh, that's a good one, that's a big tick, that one. Maybe even my small group, I went to a small group. It's not every week, but I went this week, tick. I've, I've done enough, just enough to keep carrying on. Now, here's the problem with these illustrations. None of those things are bad things. And if you're wrestling and you've managed that much, that may be wonderful, okay? So, this is the problem, but it's a heart issue. It's about what's going on inside. If you ever think that because you have ticked those boxes, therefore you can carry on for another week as a Christian, once again, you're in the blessing of God because I've managed to do those things, you are in extreme danger. Just enough? Of course it's not enough. If you think that it's enough, then you've missed the point. You could go to church every day of the week, go to Bible study every other day, and that doesn't quite work, right? So you're going twice a day, read the Bible, pray, spend hours in charitable giving and works, and you could... It still wouldn't be enough. The cross of Christ is enough and that alone is enough. If that doesn't fill our lives, the transformation is one of going from a religion into a relationship. There's the change of words. What we need 
is Jesus' death that fills our lives with the Holy Spirit such that daily we love Jesus and He loves us and the cross has paid it all so that we are freed from guilt and empowered to live His life. That's what it's about. If you ever find yourself thinking, I've done enough this week, you've got the category completely wrong. I heard a story of a man who went and visited a church that was a different culture to his own. And he thought, I'm going to go and see. Everyone keeps talking about this particular culture and their church services. I'm curious, I'm going to walk in. He walked in, sat down. People arrived, church started. It was, it was, it was wonderful, it was joyous. There were, there were, people seemed genuinely happy to be there. It was a very unusual experience. Uh, the singing was wonderful and the, the people were reading the scriptures and praying and the preacher got up and started preaching. This, this is a real story, by the way. This isn't like, you know, going to go to heaven or whatever. This is a real church. The preacher started preaching passionately and engaged and, and he kept on preaching and he kept on preaching and the guy was looking at his clock going, what is going on here? An hour passed and he's still preaching, still going. And Eventually he sits down and the, the crowd's going, get up again, give us some more. And they kept singing for an hour. Three hours the church service went for. Three hours. And he stopped to think about it. Why did that just, what is going on? Who are these people? And he realized this, church was their happy place. The world was, was Babylon. The world is the enemy of God's people. The world, especially for this particular cultural group, the world literally oppressed them and enslaved them and prevented them from being godly, persecuted them for being followers of Jesus. And for whatever short window of time they got to gather with God's people, for whatever length that window was, that's the time they were free. That's the window when they could be in love with Jesus and loved by Jesus in full and open expression without any of the persecution of the world. Why on earth would they not want it to go longer? And sit in the pew saying, I'm not leaving yet. I'm not done. This is where I want to be. As soon as this finishes, I have to go back out there again. And I thought, what's happened to us? Us in the West, sure. Us in Sydney, yes. Us at Barney's. Do you know what the problem is, I reckon, partly? That what's outside there is so often our happy place. So that when we come in here, it's a thing I've got to put up with in order to get back to my happy place. Whatever it is that's out there. God's people are kind of drab and dreary, a bit boring. And we're Anglicans, so we don't even lift our hands when we sing, right? There's just, where's, where's the, the joy? Where's the freedom of this moment gathered together around our God's throne, hearing His word? delighting in each other, loving Jesus so much that right now it's like, where on earth would I be other than here? Can we go a bit longer, please? Can we, can we, it's nine o'clock, can we just, preacher, stay up, give me some more, give me some more. Brothers and sisters, encourage me, can we pray together for a while? I just don't want to pray with, can we, why just four, we only do three songs at eight o'clock, can we keep singing afterwards, can we, let's just stay, 
and the band will come for 10 o'clock and we'll sing along with them. And then I'm going to stay for 10 o'clock because where else would I go? Here are God's... I, I, I don't know if it works or not. I mean, it's, it's not our culture, right? That's okay. I don't want you to leave feeling guilty. What I want you to leave is in love with the Lord Jesus who died for you so that you know that the cross of Christ is everything you need. Your life is based on that. There's no religious work. You don't have to tick a box. You've been saved by Jesus to be blessed. Because the, the other extreme end is the person who does every single religious work. And do you know what happens to that person? They live in fear. That's what happens to that person. Never sure they've done enough. That's the Muslim, right? I'm going to pray five times a day. I'm going to do Ramadan. I'm going to do all the pilgrimage to Mecca. I'm going to do everything. And I still don't know at the end. Am I going to heaven? No idea. Maybe Allah will have mercy on me. I don't know. I better do some more tomorrow just in case I didn't do enough. Just don't be that person. The Christian version of it is exactly the same, by the way. I want to make sure I'm at church. I'm going to do the cleaning roster and the mowing roster. And I'm going to go to a Bible study group. And I'm going to make sure that I'm... And it just tick, tick, tick. I'm, I'm going to do all the works. I'm going to go and start a ministry to the disadvantaged and the poor. They're all good things, okay, please. They're all great things. But none of them earn you God's blessing. Jesus has done it all. And do you know the outcome of it? The purpose, verse 14 again, was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ so that we could receive the promised spirit through taking God at his word, through believing him when he said, trust my son, he's done it all. So what's the point of the law? Well, that's next week. (laughs) Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him. We love you. Thank you that he took the curse that was ours. The stripes that we deserve fell on him. The death, the condemnation, the wrath. He bore it. Father, our sin tempts us so much to want to go back to legalism. It tempts us so much to want to go back to just just contributing our little bit. Please, Father, keep us far from that. May we, like Abraham, in the midst of our failings and our sin, take you at your word, trust you that Jesus has done it all. Amen.